0: Hello, and welcome to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how's it going?
1: It's going great. I just discovered the mute button. I'm excited.
0: (laughs) So are we.
2: Uh (laughs) (laughs) Hey, David, I want to begin with a compliment to Angelina. One of my Gutenberg students, who is preparing for her two years, who has been—how um, do I say this politely? Her parents listen. <laughs> Hello, Greg and Kristen. Uh, super fans. They are. They are super fans. They, um, their daughter, a sophomore at Gutenberg, is preparing for her two years, and she is taking on a little bit of anxiety about preparing for her two years. There—that's the polite way of saying it. She just told me, I'm at Gutenberg. She just told me, I just saw her, I passed her in the kitchen. She said, I, after talking to Angelina, feel so prepared for my two years. It was awesome. (laughs) So I don't know what you did, Angelina. But this student is now, like the anxiety level has dropped. She is feeling ready to go for her two-year oral exams over the entirety of western history and apparently you you accomplish that in one phone call
1: in one phone call but you see what she doesn't know is it's all going to come back to bite her like when she's when she's sitting in the exam and she starts spewing <laughs> out my stuff and they're like what crazy talk like, what is yeah, that what right. nonsense
2: that is factually incorrect <laughs>
1: Exactly, and she'll call me back all upset, and I'll be like, hey, I said I'd help with the anxiety, and I did.
0: <laughs> Not with the truth. Were you so, talking to a crazy person?
1: <laughs>
0: because that's crazy person talk that you were just telling us.
1: I know. I was actually feeling that pressure. We were on the phone. I wanted to be like, so who's on this committee? Is it Tim? I feel like I can give you Tim answers.
0: <laughs>
2: Yeah, it might not be me. <laughs>
1: Actually, I had this moment when she was talking to me where I thought, you're going to say all this stuff, and they're going to be like, man, she sounds exactly like Angelina.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, speaking of crazy talk, we're here to talk about Flannery O'Connor. Uh, we're here to talk about every, uh, the collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge. And we're here to talk about, in particular, the story The Comforts of Home. Um, I'm sure that we can tie all of this into this particular listener's conundrum her exam conundrum i'm sure we can somehow tie her her situation into this into this story um but before we do that i need to take care of a little bit of business we need to say uh thank you to everyone who's been commenting on the facebook page joining the conversation all that kind of stuff to everyone who voted in the the children's lit challenge um in case you didn't know uh the lion the witch and the wardrobe won that. So when we're done with Flannery O'Connor, we will do a episode discussing why that is a good book. Um so look forward to that sometime later on this spring. Also, as you might know, we have mugs, close reads mugs available to you. Check out CerseiInstitute.org dot org for more on that. But we also are going to be giving away today two of two stone coasters they're super absorbent neoprene padded bottoms used for hot or cold beverages from Sunset Hill Stoneware in Wisconsin. Um, and they That say, was
1: amazing, David. They
0: say close reads on them, as you might expect, but then they also say Around the Edge, a book club podcast for the incurable reader. So we have two of these that we are going to give away, and here's what we're going to do. If you want to see what they look like, you can look on the, the Facebook page for close reads where Graham posted an, a, a photo of them. But uh, we're going to give away two of these coasters at random to two people, among many, who post on Close Reads why they have been listening to Close Reads, why it's helpful, in other words, and that tag, put hashtag Close Reads on it. Do not put this on the Close Reads Facebook page. Put it on your own page and then tag us on it, and then we will see that. And we will, uh, at random, choose two of you. Really, what we're going to choose is the ones that we like the best, the ones that make us feel the best about ourselves, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Th- that's going – we're, we're going to give away two of these, and we will ship them to you um, with your mug if you ordered it. Otherwise, we'll just ship it to you uh, by itself. But, I mean, if you are going to win this, you might as well order a mug too. So you have a mug to set on top of the Close Reads coaster. They're pretty cool stone coasters. We have them around the office now. And Angelina and Tim, would you guys like a coaster?
1: I want a coaster, love a coaster so bad. I'm about to get in my car right now and drive to the office.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you can do that, but we can just send you one. Okay. Um. So we will send you both one as well, but you have to comment on on Facebook as well, and you have to talk about why you appreciate our listeners so much, tagging the close to oh, page I was just gonna post. and I putting a hashtag like on there.
1: Jelena's insights so much, <laughs> so I have to say something about someone else. Okay,
0: you I'm have sure. to talk about why our listeners are so awesome. Um. So again. Post on your own personal Facebook page, not the Close Reads group. And um, then make sure you use hashtag Close Reads giveaway. So hashtag Close Reads giveaway, all one word. And that's where we're going to go see the list of all the people who wrote something. And then we will choose, as I said, two at random from those people Is there a time frame post.
1: for this, David? Like you're going to cut it off after a certain time? Because uh, not everybody listens at the same time.
0: What we'll do is we will say the cutoff is next week. So we'll say at at the time of recording next week. So today's the 31st. I believe next Friday is the 6th, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Nope, sorry. April 7th. Next Friday, April 7th. So by the time we record at 2 p.m. Eastern time, that's when we're going to choose two names. and We'll announce them on the show, and then we'll contact them as well. But we'll give you a shout-out on the show. David, it's hashtag close reads. Giveaway. Giveaway. All one word. Just like for the sake of the hashtag, I know those are yes. all. One. I know that's not all one word in English, but in hashtag language, it's all one word. Yes. Okay. So, does that make sense? Everybody clear on that? I know you know the, to the two of you anyway. That makes sense. That sound good.
1: I think it makes sense. And speaking of our awesome listeners, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who came up to me at the Kindred Conference to say they listened. That was a lot of fun. And overwhelmingly, the comment that I got the most. Well, my, in addition to, man, Tim and David really need to just step back and let you shine more. Obviously, there's that. <laughs> but but the other comment that I got. The other
0: one that said, man, I feel sorry for David and Tim that have to control that.
1: They were probably that... telling that to Cindy and Oh, Jared. okay. I didn't get that so Oh, much.
0: okay, um, okay, okay, got it.
1: Those were the people on the edge of the corner shooting me daggers. Uh, right, okay. Um, but no, but they said overwhelmingly that they felt like they were in a book club with us. Which I thought was great, since that's you know kind of what we wanted to do here. So I that was. Cool.
0: They feel like they're in a book club with us, really.
1: That's what they said. That was like the tagline.
0: Well, that that's because we've been telling them that it's our book club podcast. <laughs> I
1: was like, David's subliminal message. You it's like it. if yeah. you
0: say that something is dog food long enough, eventually you'll believe that it's dog food. Close is dog food. I mean, you can take that however you want. I just chose a random thing. Um, that
2: actually, that kind of made my day, Angelina, hearing that people said that, because it's kind of, I mean, that's not easy to do. And people I don't think really all...
1: did say that. I, thought, I took it that's as great. such a compliment. I really yeah, did.
2: it's a great compliment.
1: I, I, very much so. Like, you know, we're all in this together, wrestling through these ideas, yeah. you know?
2: I love yeah. that. You know, that, that's one of the things, as you guys know, I'm a theater aficionado, and I
0: like, I Can, like drama. Hold on, I have a question. Is what yeah. is one allowed to refer to themselves as an aficionado of something?
2: You are if you if you are an aficionado.
0: Okay. I mean, are you next week are you gonna refer to yourself as an expert? Just
1: I think start, start referring to yourself as a third <laughs> person, Tim. Then you can really pull it off. Too no, no,
2: no, hold on, hold on. Isn't an chill? aficionado there's a there's a slight difference of meaning. An aficionado is one who has the capacity for great appreciation. Okay. An expert is different than that. An okay. expert is I know and have the skills uh to be an elite member of this discipline.
0: <laughs> okay. That's fair. That's fair. I mean I just needed to make sure that I teased you as well as Angeline. The <laughs> equal opportunity host teasing so <laughs> You know, we we got to I got to make sure Angelina doesn't feel like I'm piling on, right? Well,
1: we just keep <laughs> passing the bullseye back and forth. That's right,
0: exactly. Okay, carry on with your comment there. I apologize for teasing you. No, it's fine. I mean, I'm it's not fine. really sorry, but go ahead. <laughs>
2: um the best plays for me are the ones where I walk out and I forgot for a while that I was an outsider to the play, that I was not a character in the play, you know. If I'm sitting in the audience and I forget that I'm an audience member, and I actually think that I'm in the living room of this couple or this family, that's you know, Tim, in have an you seen a therapist play.
1: about these feelings?
2: <laughs> no, that's the goal, isn't it? Isn't that the, that's the goal of any like performative human art? It's to like make the audience forget that they're an outside observer and to just
0: totally immerse. Is come on, that's the goal. Uh, no,
1: I totally agree with you.
0: Especially theater, where you're, Especially you know, theater. where you're in the room, the same room as the performers, and it's happening real time. It's you know, yes.
2: And you can hear them breathing, and you can like see. I mean, if you're close enough, you can see the beat of sweat trickle down the temple.
0: Well, I mean, at least when you're performing. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> when I'm. Oh
1: wow!
2: No, I gotta own that. I, <laughs> Let's just pause for a second. <laughs> During last summer, Hamlet, I had – I think I, – did I mention this? I strategically had backstage at about four different places where I would make exits and entrances, I had thick, fluffy cotton towels in all of these places because I could I would go off stage and I would be sweating so hard <laughs> that I had to mop my face and the back of my neck and like go under my shirt and like just I was overwhelmingly <laughs> I wish I could find some like more um, delicate way of swe- saying it sweating I was <laughs> not glowing I was dripping
0: Oh man hey so eventually we should talk about this today. This story. I
1: don't know why.
0: Um. Do you um? Do you ever feel like th- this is my segue here, and I don't mean to to take away from what you were saying, but you were talking about theater, and I want to say this before I forget him, because as I was reading this, I was thinking that at times Flannery O'Connor feels very theatrical. Um.
1: Oh, in, in what sense? What do you mean? Um.
0: Well, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of screenwriting. Um, and like, what makes a good screenwriter screen like a good screenplay? And I assume, while different, some of the same um, principles apply to screenwriting as do to to playwriting. Um, and so I've been thinking about the way, oftentimes, um, a screenplay or a or a play is different, a little different than a movie, because at times it's often like your the limitations of space and time and place are a little bit more profound. Mm. Um, like, and you have this finite amount of time when um, mm. you can't jump through time the same way i mean you can but like a tv episode for example is kind of like a short story and that you have a much more finite amount of time to tell a larger story or a small part of a larger story um in part you know like a short story i always think of them as they're a small snippet of a larger story that's going on that we're not all we're not privy to all the details too but we're we're only privy to a small part of it um and and i think that o'connor presents that in a really interesting way um, and part of that is the way her dialogue is so punchy. Like you could see it, yeah. like if you were turning one of her stories into a screenplay, it wouldn't be that difficult. Yeah. Because there's a lot of dialogue. And, and oftentimes they're within a confined um amount, a confined space. Like I think of some of those plays from like the 60s. Is it, is Neil Simon, he was mm-hmm. a playwright in the 60, right? Uh-huh. 60s, right? 60s, uh-huh. right? And, and I, I remember studying some of his plays and where, um, I remember one play in particular that I had to perform a scene from where it's, it's a it's a couple and they're fighting in a they're having an argument in their apartment and a lot of the play took place in this single apartment mm-hmm. like almost like certain hit like a like you know a hitchcock movie or something where some of the yeah. movies are yeah. very confined spaces and her stories seem to take place in very specific spaces and in this per- story in particular it felt theatrical because it's basically all taking place in this one house other than when they go on the drive and yeah, it felt like but... I. It felt like I could feel the walls around them. Mm-hmm. And and that and it, it was a really interesting effect where it feels like within Thomas there's something closing in around him. And oh yeah, and like it being in that one single space, I think creates that effect. And it felt theatrical. Like I could see myself in a room in a theater where the room is dark and the lighting is just right, and I could see somehow as the story is going on. The lighting getting tighter and tighter until it's almost like at the end there's a spotlight on this one scene, yeah. And then it's all darkness around them. Does that does that make sense? That's what felt theatrical sense. about no, that.
1: That does make sense. I had not thought of that, but as you were talking, I I'm chuckling to myself because I must have been picking up on it somehow because as I was reading it, I was casting the parts, mm-hmm. and we- I kept thinking about star, and I kept. Imagine, you know, how would I cast her? You know, this kind of like late '50s sex kitten kind of character. Mm. And um, so I'm, yeah, I guess I was picking up somehow on that too because I was—I don't usually do that—mentally cast actors as I'm reading, but I was doing that this time.
2: I want to hear who you cast, Angelina. I wonder, if, though, if we could pause. I really like it because I am kind of a plot guy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I wonder if we could do like a recap of the plot and then we follow this train of thought because I love this train of thought.
0: Yeah. I I I was actually going to ask you, you are, as we determined last week, our resident summarizer. That's right. (laughs) Clearly Graham did not steal it from you because he's not back this week. (laughs) 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 Um, He's
1: making gifs somewhere of the plot. He's
0: just sending us all um, lots of uh, uh, posts on our Facebook group, Facebook message. Um, So yeah, Tim, as the resident summarizer, please go ahead and just quickly summarize this story for us.
2: So the, Spotlight opens on Thomas. Thomas is <laughs> 35 years old, and like so many characters in Flannery O'Connor's stories, he's living at home with his mother. Uh, he lives upstairs, and the mother—help me with this, you guys—the mother has taken in a young woman. There's no, there's no relationship between right. them. There, okay. She
1: just reads about her in the newspaper.
2: Okay, that's right. Um, the young woman's name is Star. How old is Star? 19. I, okay. Star, from the first paragraph, um, is referred to as the little slut in Thomas's kind of telling of the story. Mm-hmm. She kind of jounces into the house, and Thomas immediately braces against her. There's something about her that he really, really distrusts, maybe even despises. And um, his mother is just trying to do this woman some good. She's trying to kind of give her an opportunity to kind of get on her feet. She comes from a really awful background. It's not really clear what has happened to her, but some terrible things have happened to her. Um, Thomas, meanwhile, is hearing the voice of his deceased father, who sounds like a real law and order kind of guy, um, telling Thomas that, The women of the house are overrunning you. This star is um, kind of unseating you in some way. She's – I don't know. Thomas feels like a coward that he's not running the house. So um, star acts out. The mother kind of puts her in with another friend to help take care of her for a while but Star kind of explodes over this neighbor's house. They have to go pick her up and bring her back home. Meanwhile, um, Thomas kind of concocts this, this hope that she's going to do something terrible to herself. She does end up trying to commit suicide, does Star. Though it looks like it's kind of a half, half half-baked attempt, more meant to kind of get attention than to actually do the deed. Um, Thomas puts a gun. He keeps a gun in the top drawer. It was the
1: dad's gun, so the
2: dad's thick, gun. Fight. Thick with
1: significance there. Yeah,
2: and um, me and he comes home one day. He finds the gun has been moved. He can't find it. He assumes that Star has it. Uh, he goes to the sheriff. The sheriff is kind of like. A stand-in for the dad in some way. He's a law and order guy, obviously not just by profession, but by temperament. Um, Thomas tries to tell the the sheriff, a Star is overrunning my house. I think that she has, you know, terrible plans. My gun has been taken. So Thomas returns home. He finds the gun, and instead of showing mercy on Star, he goes down and places, surreptitiously places the pistol in Star's pocketbook. Star and his mother both emerge at the same time from their various rooms and they discover him with his hand in the pocketbook. And there's a, he kind of tries to pin it on her. He pins it on her that he just found this pistol. Then there's a little scrum and the scrum ends as a shot goes off, the sheriff opens the front door to see the mother has been shot. And this confirms the sheriff's suspicion that Star and Thomas had plans to off the mother because they were secretly
0: lovers and that's, you know, (laughs) curtain, curtain down.
1: Oh, so great. That ending was so great.
0: Well, it's funny because last week we talked about a story where nobody dies, and in my opinion, it's a fairly hopeful story. Uh, actually, uh-huh. I would argue it's a really hopeful story, even if you know a lot of people said they didn't like asbury Fox, um which I guess is kind of the point but um it's a pretty hopeful story now this time we get um this this woman accidentally dies, and it's hard to tell where that you know trademark o'connor dark grace comes into it so i suspect that a lot of people are going to be like well here we go again Mm -hmm. um and yeah that kind of is true um but um what so we'll have to we'll have to try to get to the bottom of that but i also want to follow the train of thought we were just kind of um we kind of left off with before our summary there so let's jump on that and then just by way of kind of teasing what i want to talk about later i really want to compare this story with some of the other ones we've talked about in particular uh, the mother character, because we've had several mother characters now that I think are, every story we've read, I think, except, well, except A View of the Woods, has had a um, important motherly, yep. mother character. And well, even
1: in that one, she's dead, but she's still a n- presence. So.
0: True, true. Um, so, yeah, we need to, um, I, I'd like to I compare those. this so.
1: story felt different. I've never read this one before. And I thought it felt different, very different.
0: Okay, so why did you – okay, give be more specific.
1: Difference in tone, mm-hmm. not as much as the grotesque, and the dividing line between the right thing and the wrong thing to do was, was very subtle.
0: Okay. Because he's yeah.
1: very sympathetic. He's not a loser. He really – he loves his mother, so we don't have the whole I hate my yep. mother and I despise everything. And it, it looks on the surface like he's trying to protect his mother. Of course, there's something more going on there, but – Maybe it's just my own personal sin issues that I've. I mean, I feel like I would have those same concerns. Like, mom, it's fine to help people, but she can't be helped, and you're bringing her in our house, and she's going to take advantage of you. And I mean, I'm not saying I'd plant a gun on her,
2: but. But is it similar, Angelina, to kind of to what your response maybe was to Mrs. Greenleaf? You're. There's we're meant somehow to have like A certain level of respect for Miss Greenleaf, but I felt myself saying, Oh, Miss Greenleaf, come on now, like get up out of the dirt and start sh- it, stop shrieking. And I think that O'Connor would kind of point the finger at me and say, There you go, you um,
0: you like your you need to be shot, kind of epid, you need to be shot, Tim, or Gord in that case. Yeah. okay let's so do you guys think then that um Thomas's mother is she ever named in this story? I was looking oh, for it, and I don't, I don't think she, she is. is yeah again um uh just you know another mother who's not named um do you think that she is doing the right thing in how she's trying to care for star or Sarah, or whatever we want to call her?
1: I loved O'Con- O'Connor's line that it's her daredevil charity.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, and I think she's one of these fool for Christ, and but she's not, you know, because he he Thomas tells her, you know, she's just taking advantage of you, and she's talking about you behind your back. And the mom said, "You think I don't know that?"
2: Mm, yeah. Like, this
1: could be you. Like, you know, it's it's so hard to fault her. She just, you know, she's compassionate. We find, we 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 know from Thomas that. Anytime anything happens to anybody in the town, the mom is there with a box of candy.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: Right? She's just a mother. She's a nurturer. And so she just wants to go and rescue this girl, which, you know, a lot of people who are like that end up getting really hurt and taken advantage of. Yeah. But it's such a it's such a virtuous quality, though, to want to go and help people.
0: It's like and the – I, I, I... Go ahead.
1: Well – I think a lot of it has to do with motivations. On the surface, Thomas looks like the sensible one, and she looks like the idiot. But then under the surface, she's got all the right intentions, and he's got all the wrong intentions. He just doesn't want his comfortable life disturbed. That's the real issue, right? The comforts of home, that's what it's really about, and she's disturbing that. And I noticed how many times he talked about his inner sanctum being invaded, right? The girl invades it. The mother invades it. Yeah, He just wants to be not bothered, and so that's his real issue. But he's kind of, and I feel like I have done this so many times in my life. Like my real issue is wrong, but I justify it with this high-minded sounding principles. You know, well, can't help those who won't help themselves, and Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. we're just going to be taken advantage. You know, if you give them money, they're just going to go buy alcohol. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And and of course, C.S. Lewis's famous line, right? He's on the way to the pub, and he gives the homeless guy a few dollars, and his friend says you know, he's only going to use that to buy a beer and CS Lewis says, well, what do you think I was going to do?
2: With
0: it? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to tell you guys a funny story actually about that. Um, because as I'm reading this, it, this kind of all came back to me about, um, 11 years ago, I was living with Graham in Dubuque, Iowa. We were living in that old house with the attic that we told you about last week.
1: You were living inside a Faulkner story. That's all I can picture. Yeah, uh, right. Except that it was you an Iowa. I- it was Kurt- an in Iowa.
0: Yeah, it was an Iowa. So we knew whoever, who's the Midwestern writer, uh, Marilyn Robinson, I guess, but, um, but, um, I'm, it's very cold out one night and I'm very hungry and very poor and, um, very 19. And so I decide to go for a walk in this 30 degree weather about a mile away to this McDonald's. And, uh, I get, you know, this, this, I've got this big wool um, Peacoat type thing on, and i've got like three dollars in my pocket, so i 'm like i'm going to go down there i 'm gonna get some fries and like an apple pie or something right so i go I walk all the way down there, and I had just finished reading this story, which mm. at the, oh. which at the time i didn't make any connection to, but in retrospect, you know like it took me a long time to realize this connection because i 'm an idiot because i 'm you know thick like that but i'm walking down the road it's really cold and i 'm about halfway there, and I see this homeless guy he's sitting on the side of the road. And he goes he comes up to me. Um and it's it's nighttime by the way, it's almost midnight and um I'm kinda like, All right, this is gonna be interesting and he goes, You got any weed? He didn't even say hi. Well actually he said hey, but he was like, Hey, you got any weed? I said, No, I do not <laughs> and uh um, <laughs> um and so I say, But I've got um you know, I, I've got a couple dollars. Would that help? And He's like, "No, nah, man, you got any weed?" I was like, no. "I was like, no, but I can. I, I'm going to McDonald's. If you want to go to McDonald's with me, I can get you McDonald's." And He's like, "No, nah, man, you got any weed?" And this, he just goes, it goes on like this. And I was like, "I'm sorry, I don't have any weed." So I, I say, you know, I'll, I got to keep going. I'll talk to you later. So I keep going, and I'm walking down the road. And then um, I get, I go to McDonald's. They had at the time, I think they had like two apple pies for a dollar. So I get my yeah. fries, whatever. I sit there. I'm, I pull out my book. I'm I'm reading a little bit more of it at the McDonald's. I walk home. It's really cold. This guy, this this homeless guy, is th- the same spot. It's like he didn't recognize me at all. Twenty minutes later, he's like, "Hey man, you got any weed?" And I was like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, "No sir, I don't have any. We- I don't have any weed, but I do have these apple pies. Would you like one?" And he kind of looks at him for a second. And he kind of like sniffs the air, and he's like, yeah, "I can see him sniffing." And he's he looks really cold. And, um, he's like, he's like, you sure you don't have any weed? I was like, no, <laughs> I don't, I don't have any weed, <laughs> but if you'd like a, a, uh, apple pie, you can have one. And so, and so he takes, he's like, all right, all right, I'll have an apple pie. And so we, I, we, we ate, we stood there for a second. We ate them together. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm, so then I start thinking about like, w- w- can I do something else for this guy? Right. I'm trying to like be charitable. Right. Yeah. So, I'm like, you know, I live just up there. You look cold. You you want you want my jacket, and um, I probably was feeling noble or something, right? But he goes, "Nah, man, you got any weed?"
2: Oh my god! And I
0: was like, "Uh, no, no, I don't have any weed." But so I think I gave, I think I ended up giving him my coat, and then I walked back and I get up there and then I read this story and I realize sometimes. You know, sometimes it feels like you're doing the right thing, but or you're trying to be charitable, but you just never know what that's going to mean, right? Like, all the guy really wanted was some weed, and he probably went away feeling like he wasn't getting what he wanted. I mean, he got an apple pie and a jacket out of it, but he didn't get what he wanted. And then somebody later on said to me something like, "You have to do, I think I went back and I talked to Graham and the other guy we were living with, and we started talking about how sometimes you just have to do try to do the best thing you can do or the right thing, and then hope that God can use that for however however he sees fit, whether it's because you know it might mean nothing or it might mean something later on, but that's it's not really up to us to determine you know how it's going to." change someone's life we just have to mm. do the right thing mm. and i feel like that's what thomas is missing um and if you i wanted to read a passage my story went on a little long basically because the guy asked me for weed 40 times in five minutes um do you think in your I just feel like you're opinion, missing the
1: real the real point of that story was you know loving your neighbor would have been to go find some weed
0: <laughs>
1: well that's one
0: thing i could have taken from that yeah
2: go on had the man who was asking you for the weed maybe partaken too much of the weed and thus couldn't kind of really remember that he had asked you three previous times it is
0: well no I mean I said it three times in the story but he asked me a dozen times really Um, really uh, yeah it's possible it's possible you Um, know what
1: I want to do is take this story and pretend to rewrite it in the style of every kind of author so like Flannery O'Connor David tries to get the weed they end up in a fight he gets killed you know (laughs) Faulkner writes the story like I just want to come up with alternative endings. Sure, uh-huh. like, you
0: know, so Faulk- so if it was Doyle writes the story, the Faulkner version, the, the Faulkner version, the whole story is two sentences, and in the end, there's an inner monologue leading to <laughs> leading to uh, a suicide. The Hemingway
1: yeah. version, I don't have any weed, but I have some bourbon. Can I interest you in that?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's much. And then the, the Fitzgerald one, was just an existential crisis. But that's, the
1: Hemingway one would be like, oh, I just have so much ennui. I need weed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's read a passage here that I think touches on this. Do you guys see? I, I'm looking at the complete collection this week because that's what okay, you guys use. Right. Okay. And it's on, me for me, it's on page 385 towards the bottom. It's the third page of the story. Um, we better. Thomas do this loved bef- his mother. Yes, we mm-hmm. better. I want to read these next two paragraphs because it touches on what we're talking about here, and we better get back to the story before this episode goes completely off the rails. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, will you read those two those two uh, gra- sure. gra- graphs for us?
2: Thomas loved his mother. He loved her because it was his nature to do so. But there were times when he could not endure her love for him. There were times when it became nothing but pure idiot mystery, and he sensed about him forces. Invisible currents entirely out of his control. She proceeded always from the tritest of considerations. It was the nice thing to do. Into the most foolhardy engagements with the devil, whom, of course, she never recognized. The devil, for Thomas, was only a manner of speaking. But it was a manner appropriate to the situations his mother had got into. Had she been in any degree intellectual, he could have proved to her that from early Christian history, that no excess of virtue is justified, that a moderation of good produces likewise a moderation in evil, that if Anthony of Egypt had stayed at home and attended to his sister, no devils would have plagued him.
0: Uh, Angelina, read that next paragraph too. It ties in.
1: Thomas was not cynical, and so far from being opposed to virtue, he saw it as the principle of order and the only thing that makes life bearable. His own life was made bearable by the fruits of his mother's saner virtues, by the well-regulated house she kept and the excellent meals she served. But when virtue got out of hand with her, as now, a sense of devils grew upon him, and these were not mental quirks in himself or the old lady. They were denizens with personalities, present though not visible, who might any moment be expected to shriek or rattle a pot."
0: Mm man these three paragraphs are so loaded and i think there's mm-hmm. so much of what's going on in the story is here um and also just a really interesting contemplation of virtue the, through narrative um i love this so interesting she proceeded always from the tritest of considerations it was the nice thing to do um and of course that's thomas's perspective um right do you think that um that he is right in in that her considerations are trite and then if and I'm not saying that you should not feel one way or the other um, but if you do do you think that that means that, he, that she is then wrong to be doing what she's doing or you know the other way of putting that is do you think that his concerns are justified so the first part is do you think that he is correct and that her considerations are trite
2: surely not surely her considerations are not trite. They may manifest themselves in what look like trite ways, a box of candy for somebody getting out of the hospital. But her motivations,
0: Hmm. no, that's—I don't
2: see trite at all.
0: I like that um, that thought there that that it's um, how her considerations manifest themselves that maybe are not always the best for the situation or maybe a little bit. You know, trite, but that it's not the considerations themselves. And Angelina, do you agree with that, or do you want to take the counter position?
1: All right, I'll say two things. First, I think it's interesting that how how Thomas and his mother are contrasted because Thomas is a historian, intellectual, scholar who lives primarily in his head, in the world of ideas, and so he's got ideas about mm-hmm. what virtue should be. His right. mother is all action, right, with without much principle behind it. She just acts. So I think that that's interesting. Um, hmm. the other thing is that yeah. I have seen in the lives of people close to me, and I do not know the answer to how to harmonize this. You're going to okay,
0: give so, names, right?
1: Totally. And phone <laughs> numbers, Facebook pages. I will tag everyone. In All English. we need is names. Okay. So what I have seen happen, there's this one family in particular where the mom and dad just could not be more compassionate people and empathetic. I mean they want to save the world. There's literally not a kid, a homeless kid in town that they're not going to bring home. And it's amazing to watch them do that. On the other hand, it ends up having a really negative effect on their children. Yeah. Because they are literally bringing in people with drug problems and criminal past and all of that. And I've talked to them and literally do not know what the right answer is. I keep trying to figure out how do you harm – it's such a good desire, and I want to praise them for that. But then they also, as parents, have a need to protect the home, which I feel like speaks to the tension in this story. Yeah. I don't know what the answer is. But I think it's so virtuous that they don't think of it as somebody else's problem. Homeless kids is not someone else's problem to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, do you think? I mean, do you think that that Thomas's mother goes too far in not protecting her home? And do well, you- in this
1: case, he's a grown man, so you know, there's no real threat to him.
2: That's okay. This is this is the issue that we're kind of on it now, and I want to bring it up. He's not in any physical danger. The only physical danger that he's in. He kind of creates for himself with the pistol. Mm -hmm. The whole danger. Am I not right in saying like the whole danger is like the sexual tension that? um, Well, I think it's just that he gets made
1: uncomfortable, right? The the title is the comforts of home, and now his home is uncomfortable. I think that's the real issue because I don't sense that she is any kind of real sexual threat. She just makes him uncomfortable. And she
2: she makes him uncomfortable. Like he has to share um, his, his new, mother his dinner table with her
1: and his mother. He's been the sole recipient of her affection and love and care.
0: So
2: that part of it, I have, I had a hard time.
1: I had so a hard time. I got time. this from Sally Fitzgerald, right? So, and I hope we do talk about this. She, she talks about, well, she actually has some quotes from Flannery O'Connor's letters because Flannery O'Connor intended this story to be, an indictment of psychology and psychological explanations for behavior. And she's trying to introduce spiritual reasons. So, you know, the dad really is a devil and not a psychological manifestation. Uh,
0: Before you go on from that, I do want to say that to Tim's point, it is interesting. It's ironic, I suppose, that much of the literary, the academic reading of this story does turn to that sexual tension. And they argue that what's going on here is that Thomas is repressing Himself,
1: okay. So and so it's ironic yeah.
0: that that's what o, that that O'Connor yeah. was trying to make that point because that's the O'Connor reading that then comes out of it.
1: Says I don't want a Freudian reading of this story.
0: Yeah, which is what ended up happening.
1: Yeah, she says that specifically, and she says, "Why is it that every guy who's got a mother in a story or has issues with his dad, it's got to be an Oedipal complex?" She's like, "That's not what's going on here."
2: He said, I got to press she, pause right here. This is the only story. I mean, I hear what Flannery O'Connor is is saying. This is the only story in this collection that this is an issue in, at least for me. Um, I that's, a, that's just a curious remark that O'Connor made because she doesn't want it to be... I, I don't think that we have read any of the other stories as sort of like Oedipal complexes or potential Oedipal complexes. This one, though, seems like... Man, the door seems open to that. Even if you're not, I mean, I'm not a Freudian, but it does seem like this is part of the tension of the story. I, I'm having a hard time buying that it's just that he was, um, Thomas was just kind of not really experiencing that he got to like have his mother, you know, like all to himself. Um, well, that he didn't get to have his meals in peace and silence. It, it does seem like there's something else going on. Well, there.
0: could, could we um could could it be perhaps, Tim, that what to Angelina's point that maybe O'Connor is is seeing these kinds of stories and the customary academic, you know, Freudian readings of them and she's then creating a scenario that could be read that way and saying, No, there's more to it than than the common understanding of things like that. So maybe maybe rather than reading it as a Freudian thing, she's making she's writing a story in which there's a temptation that someone has to respond to. So it doesn't have to be a, some kind of Freudian oh. psychological um, inner turmoil oh, so, mu- so much yeah. as she's creating a scenario where there's a temptation and this, you know, a, t- a temptation is a spiritual thing, right? Like that's, and so she's creating this scenario that she views as spiritual as opposed to just some kind of psychological. Oh, and she
1: takes a lot of digs at psychology in this story. Yeah, and she yeah. and she's countering that with the with the spiritual things. So, so anyway, I mean, I don't know if Tim buys this or not, but so what Sally Fitzgerald says after quoting all these letters from Flannery O'Connor is she says that uh, Thomas is not married to his mother, he's married to the house and he's a jealous lover. And that's how she ends that. So
2: yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know, Sally See, Fitzgerald. I just did not feel
1: any of the sexual tension to be real. I just saw it as an overt attempt at manipulation, and he's irritated by it.
2: But why an is attempt- he irritated
0: in- by it then? Can That's I the clarify question. something first, David?
2: Yeah. Um, what did you say, Angelina? An attempt at manipulation by who?
1: By the girl. Yeah. She's trying to press his buttons. And she does.
0: So, but why does he allow, like, in particular, why is that she comes into his room, the the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as his buttons being pushed? There's a lot of metaphors that just got mixed in that sentence, but, you know. <laughs> I, used, I used what was said before me. <laughs> <clears throat> but, so why is it that that pushes him over the limit if there's not, like... If he's not feeling something, if there's not something going on there, some kind of tension going on there, even if it's just the temptation that she's presenting. Him. I
1: guess because I saw the in the language for her invasion of the bedroom is the same language as her invasion of his study. And so I just maybe I'm just way off here. I did not at any point think that there was an actual sexual threat here.
0: I, hmm. Well, what do you mean by threat? What do you mean?
1: I didn't think he was legitimately t- – I, like, I don't think this is a story of him being like, you know, Satan, get away from me. I didn't feel like he's fleeing temptation and there's anything noble about his rejection of her, right? So if, if it's a real temptation to sin, then there's something justifiable about his, get her out of here, mom, because this is a man who maybe is fighting for his soul. Mm-hmm. But I just didn't feel like that's what was happening here. I don't think he has any real justification for his animosity toward this girl.
2: Can I just read the opening paragraph? Yeah, we need to. Thomas withdrew to the side of the window, and with his head between the wall and the curtain, he looked down on the driveway where the car has stopped. So here here we're looking with his eyes, and here's what we see. His mother and the little slut were getting out of it. His mother emerged slowly, stolid, and awkward, and then the little slut's long, slightly bowed legs slid out the dress pulled above the knee with a shriek of laughter. She ran to meet the dog who bounded overjoyed shaking with pleasure to welcome her rage gathered throughout Thomas's large frame with a silent ominous intensity, like a mob assembling. I'm, I'm just Sally Fitzgerald. This is about the comforts of his like daily habits. Um, and like the the, the comfort not being disturbed in his domicile. That that just does not jive with the opening paragraph of that story. Wow, and
1: I read the opening paragraph the complete opposite of you. David's about to get the fight he's always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> I read it as this is an untrustworthy narrator because he calls her little slut, and then the next sentence completely undercuts that by the portrayal of like laughter and the dog likes her which are that's typical literary signs of innocence, not a threat. And he responds in to that. Innocence
2: Thomas in or race. innocence in? Innocence
1: in her. See, I read her.
2: Jelena, come on now.
1: Come no. on now. No, I read her as damaged innocence who uses her sexuality as, as a, a power tool.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree if that's what you mean. Absolutely, I agree. But I don't think it's, it's not, so it's innocence in that she was probably done wrong, Um, but I, uh.
1: what do you think the line, why the line about, see, if she's coming out as this ominous threat, why the line that she's laughing and the dog approaches her with welcome? Felt like that sentence undercut the first paragraph, and I had never read this story before. And I and I got to that line, and I thought, oh, so she's not really a little slut. This it, is just his perception.
0: Angelina, can I? I actually want to. I actually do agree with you on the narrator part. Um, I think I'm sort of stuck between you. I, you both could make a convincing case um, for for what you're arguing. Your your you know each of your theses, but this first line I think is really. Um, really telling and if you especially if you think about it from a theatrical perspective like if you think about it from a light perspective lighting so thomas withdraws to the side of the window and with his head between the wall and the curtain he looked down on the driveway where the car had stopped and so if you think about think about if you're shooting this as a movie right and you're framing it yeah you're going to get this exterior shot you might start interior and then you looked out. you you get his perspective looking out on the yard but then somehow you have to show him hiding he's kind of partway hiding right so you're yeah. only going to be able to see any kind of shot you give. You're either seeing him from behind, or you're going to see him, and you're only going to be able to see part of him. Right, so you're going to be in a shadow, right? Right, so you're going to see the shadow, and the shadow is going to be, you're going to be part of his in the light, and part of him is going to be in the shadow of the curtain. And so what you're getting, you'd have to film that in such a way that he, he, you're getting a light and a dark on his face, on his well, we'll say on his face, and at odds with one another. And so you've you've got part of him is in the light, part of him is in the dark, and so immediately your opening shot, just as in this opening sentence, creates internal conflict for this character, and yeah. so and it it creates that sense of of an of an unreliable narrator of not knowing which particular character to trust, but it also creates the sense of shadow, um, emer- you know, kind of converging on top of the light and that's why i was talking about earlier how like by the end of it if you if you shot that on a stage you might have it where that the shooting that happens at the end is with almost just like a spotlight and everything else around is dark but at the beginning of it you know it maybe you've got more light and it's closing in and so i think that that kind of the, the cinematic the theatrical way she presents that um is, is to your point angelina that he is unreliable he, we don't know what to trust we don't know which part of him is, is being honest or trustworthy or is seeing things properly because shadows also affect the way you see the world, not just how the world can see you.
2: That's, that's what I'm a little bit confused by an, what we mean by an unreliable narrator because I, I think I don't think that he's deliberately lying to the reader, but I do think that he is seeing the world, albeit in this torn way, he is seeing and interpreting this world Um, And I think what he is – what is being highlighted by his narrative account to us, I think this is where the dispute is between Angelina and I. For me, it's not, here comes a threat to the comforts of my um, – here comes the threat to my domestic comfort. Because I think if that was the case, the opening paragraph, he would descend the stairs – And he would find Star, um, you know, eating the leftover casserole that his mother made for him. But that's not what the information that we're getting from him. It's all that opening paragraph is almost entirely sexualized.
1: I feel like I am like the first person to argue with the sexualized meaning. (laughs) I'm just not. We're going to we're going to
0: have to put up a warning for anyone listening with kids. Oh, yeah, we are.
1: I mean, okay, but I do find her character interesting, okay? And so, you know... Wait, Sarah's? Yes, the 19-year-old, right? I I kept thinking about when have I seen this character in a movie? And you know, and, and it, I feel like that character was around in a lot of movies at this time. And I actually felt like Marilyn Monroe could pull this off, right? This really, this intense, threatening sexuality at the same time that there's like this damaged innocence, right? And you, you feel sorry for her and threatened by her all at the same time.
2: Right, right.
1: Um,
2: I think that's absolutely, I agree, that is who she is. I think that's right. At least in Thomas's eyes. Um,
1: so I guess the real difference here. I, I agree that she's a threat, but I feel like it's a power struggle between the two of them over the mother, and she's using the weapon she has, okay, and he's using the weapon he has, which is to be like the dad and lay down the law. But they're both fighting over who's going to control the mother. And now, now. I agree Storrs- with that
2: too. Okay. I agree with that and i think that's part of the reason that the that the story concludes with the mother being shot neither of them get control over the mother it's almost right. like their struggle ends up ending the mother's life
1: yeah she's the innocent bystander to their power struggle right
0: right right which um and the the idea of the innocent bystander or the innocent victim is a common o'connor occurrence mm-hmm. it's a common mm-hmm. o'connor character um usually it's a child um and in this case it's the mother
2: yeah
0: um and that's something worth looking for as we go through the rest of these stories i think the next one i think the next story maybe has a is a classic example of an o'connor innocent um so wait what do we agree what do we disagree on right now
1: i think we're in agreement except for thomas's response to the sexual threat
0: so, Angelina, you're saying you don't think that his response, that he's not – there's not any kind of, like, uh, struggle from that perspective.
1: No. I, not that I can see, but maybe I'm just blind to it. But that's just not what I – I just didn't pick up on that. I didn't pick up that his anger toward – because then it would be a virtue, right? Get this woman out of my room. That would be a virtue if that was a real threat.
2: It would but be a virtue – him what what do you mean? Out her out of the room?
1: Yeah, yeah. If, if she really is a sexual threat to him, right? She's walking into the bedroom and he's really tempted to sin. Then it is a virtue that he says, get this woman out of my room, right?
0: Are we supposed but... to think that it wasn't a virtue that he cast her out of his room?
2: Yeah, doesn't that fit kind of David's opening shot motif that he's a character at war with himself? And in that occasion, the virtuous part of him won out
1: just I just don't see it. I just think he was upset because she's pushing the limits on him. He has you know there's no place for him to retreat anymore. that's his own domain. She's taking over everything. I don't know mm. maybe I'm just completely blind to this, but I just none of that flirting stuff had any weight for me. I mean, this is a Petruchio and Kate. I mean I can read that okay. I just didn't <laughs> feel it here. And I didn't feel that there was anything sincere behind her flirting except that she was playing the role she always plays and she was trying to manipulate a man.
0: Well, but to, to Tim's point, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here.
1: Okay, her, play the, away.
0: Her, her, you know, whether or not that's true, whether or not she had a real like goal, her if her whole goal is to just manipulate him, then that's kind of beside the like beside the point of his struggle. Does that make sense? So like whatever her goals were if she knows she can manipulate him and use you know sensuality to do that to mess with him then that's beside the point like even if she's never really going to act on it if she's just messing with him then that doesn't mean that he doesn't have some kind of that that this is a small part of a larger internal struggle going on within him
2: Yeah I think Angelina your description of who she is and where she's come from. I think it's spot on. That's exactly, I, I had the same reading.
1: Well, is this where you guys just tell me I'm a girl, so I don't get it. Cause I don't get it.
2: No, 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 no not at all.
0: I'm not convinced um. one way or the other on this. I think it's a-
1: She tries to manipulate him with sex, and that doesn't work. And then she tries the other classic thing, I'm going to kill myself. I mean, she's, Mm -hmm. like, using every tool in the damaged girl's toolbox here. I
0: will say, I will say, to your point, Angelina, if there is some kind of struggle, inner struggle, temptation going on for him, it doesn't last very long because he rejects her entirely.
1: Right. Right. She
0: is clear, to Tim's point, that she is... Being presented both by the narrator and by O'Connor as being provocative, oh yes, but he does even, reject even, her pretty quickly
2: like he doesn't well I think he I think he I think he rejects her pretty quickly, David, but I don't think that his struggle ends after the first rejection
0: so you think so what okay so you're arguing then that basically. The gist of his disdain for her is is because of this. Whereas Angela Because he's you're attracted saying,
1: to her, is that what you're saying? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I just yeah, I just see the narrator is highlighting um not his flirtatiousness to her, but her flirtatiousness to him so repeatedly that I think it's gosh, I think it's um that's the main thing that he's battling over. I mean, even when he's planting the gun in her purse, she comes down the stairs.
0: Yeah, no, that's true. This part is very sensual. Oh, um, yeah. I imagine
1: day. that being filmed as well. That was a very cinema her coming down the stairs yeah, it and was. her leg going through the slit of the robe. That
0: was yeah. This whole story great. feels very film like like a small part of a film noir novel or a movie. I was
1: thinking the same thing. She's kind of film film fatale yeah. and Marilyn Monroe did a couple of film fatale um kind of film noir stuff early in her days.
0: Um This is like the prequel to the to her story where she meets the detective, the Sam Spade character who like somehow right. it, rescues yeah, her or yeah. something.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the one I'm thinking
2: of. What is that Here, iron? Iron Jump. I How found it you? in her bag, Thomas shouted. The dirty criminal slut stole my gun. <laughs> the mother gasped the sound of the other presence in his voice. The old lady's Sybil like face turned pale. Um, skipping down a little bit, Thomas fired. The blast was like a sound meant to bring an end to evil in the world. Thomas heard it as a sound that would shatter the laughter of sluts until all shrieks were stilled and nothing was left to disturb the peace of perfect order. I, like, he's got a high, like, Thomas is hiling. It's not just the laughter of, it's the laughter of sluts. It just keeps coming back to that. I don't know. I I am I'm finding it hard to move off my point.
1: <laughs> well, and I'm finding myself less convinced as we go. On
2: really? Yeah.
1: Just ah, it's just it to call somebody a slut. It's just ah, it's just dismissive and and insulting and self-justifying. I just
2: uh, Angelina, Angelina, if you're hearing me like defending him as a quality care, I'm character,
1: not. Absolutely I'm not. not. Definitely
2: not. Um, No, the whole thing is like, is, is her primary, is she a threat to him because she is a threat to the comfort of his home? Or is she a threat to him because he is, she activates some sort of like internal dilemma over the sexuality issue for her?
1: Okay, and so I guess my hang up here is I sensed zero sexual tension in this story. Oh. And, uh And but then what do we make of the title, though? The Comforts of Home. Well, what was... do you make of the title?
0: David? Well, go ahead. Go ahead. I think she's No, here. I thought you were going to say something. Well, I was, but then she asked you that question. Oh. <laughs> I don't. I. I um... Well, here I've got a comment on that. So, I actually didn't. Th- I mean, I didn't think at all about any of the stuff you're talking. Either of you are talking about right now when I read it. Um, I noticed a
2: third interpretation.
0: I noticed. Well, it's not an. Inter- I'm not going to call, call call this an interpretation. I'm going to call this a. Um, just. I'm not even gonna call it a reading. It's just something that struck me as I was reading. It's an, it was my it's part of my experience of reading it. Um, I I like I noticed you know I've read the story enough to to have noticed the the sensual nature of the way she interacts with people around her, but um, I kept thinking about him as almost like a Pharisee, and I kept thinking about like the way the disciples and the Pharisees and stuff. Talk to Jesus when he would hang out with the prostitutes, so to speak. Uh-huh. And you know that's kind of an overused kind of thing we talk about with churches, right? Um, like it's a good excuse for bad behavior, right? For allowing bad behavior. But um, it got me thinking about like, is O'Connor saying something about judgmental, Pharisaical Christians who are willing to live out their faith only in as much as it's within. Um, a certain comfortable set of parameters that allow them to do it without any kind of internal conflict, without risking temptation, without, um, having to put in some labor, without having to put in some spiritual discipline or, um, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But, um, and and who, and who, because they don't want to do that, aren't willing to, you know, put up with someone like her right um that's just what i, I mean i'm not going to say that's what that o'connor was trying to do but that's what it got me thinking about it got me thinking about the disciples telling jesus and the pharisees telling jesus why are you hanging out with prostitutes um and no i realized like i know this i know he didn't hang out with prostitutes i know there's a lot of discussion about what what that what this what the passages say there but he did spend time with them he did talk to them he did help them and interact mm-hmm. with them um and and um and speak and speak to them so um, say it
2: again, David, say it again.
0: I don't know. I just talked for like 10, minutes. <laughs> yes. There. Say what again.
1: <laughs> Start from the beginning of the
0: episode. So, but, and just... No, no, no. Just um, a synopsis. So what my, what, it, I'm not, I'm not saying that O'Connor was trying to say this, but what the story made me think about is the way sometimes Christians, sometimes we, we don't want to, we want to live out our faith in such a degree of comfort that it's made, it stays abstract, Right. Um, it's like, oh, right. it, it, um, I want to give a shout out to, to Heidi White who wrote an article that we posted today and she called, it was called, um, reading is not enough. And the idea is that you can't just read the books. They have to lead to some sort of action within our lives. Mm-hmm. Right. And the same thing is true of our faith. We can't like our faith, the things we say, we believe the things we read in the scriptures, like it has to be more than just that it has to lead to some sort of action, right. To some sort of change in the way we interact with people around us in the way we live out that faith. And so it got me thinking about how, how people oftentimes as Christians are like Thomas when there needs to be something of a combination be t- between Thomas and his mother. And again, I'm not saying that's what O'Connor meant, but that's what I got thinking about. Maybe it was, I don't know if I want to say I was convicted about, but that's what, uh, what I was considering as Ooh. I read it, what struck me. And so if we think about it that way, re- this is where it relates to the title. Um, you got me off track on the title part when you asked me to repeat myself. Um, Sometimes if you think about the church as a home, I think sometimes we can think about like, we want our churches to be comfortable. We want to live out our faith in comfort, but rarely is that something that we we are actually called to do. Um, And if you think about like the idea of Christian asceticism, Christian discipline, rarely is it as comfortable as we want it to be. So I'm not even going to say it's a stretch because it's not an interpretation. It's just part of what I experienced when I was reading it. So you really can't yeah. challenge you really can't challenge me on it. So there.
2: You're right. It's, it's <laughs> not an interpretation. The episode in which
1: close a... reads went total relativist. This is what is true for me. Hey, I make no.
2: No, it's what David got out of it. That's. I mean, I think that's absolutely.
1: Oh, totally. So Absolutely. That, I think I that's
0: why I feel like, sh- like some, we're somewhere in – I'm coming out of it as somewhere in between what you guys are saying because I do mm-hmm. think that there is a temptation there. That I don't know – I just don't know the degree – where I'm with Angelina is I don't know t- the degree to which he actually bites on that. Like actually, she's actually a temptation for him other mm-hmm. than to be a jerk.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and and But I think where we're all in agreement is that she is a threat and – then he responds to that threat in a way that is ultimately self-destructive, right?
0: Our and listeners are going to have a field day with this episode because we're skipping over a whole lot.
1: We are, and there's so much. I mean, there's so, we didn't we talk about the dad, and you know, so he starts to he didn't even like his dad, and he starts listening to you know Hamlet's I ghost know. here. I Yep. Yeah.
0: Yep, yep. There's there's a ham, there's a big ghost thing going big on. Big
1: Hamlet there. thing, right? Big Hamlet thing. The he mother, re- and he's upset about the mother, and.
0: The mother dies. Um, so, but his father's the ghost at the beginning. During the story, his mother dies. Uh, he calls her a parasite, which is interesting. He and then he calls the girl. Star? Yeah, he calls her yeah. a parasite. He yeah. says he saw it once. Uh, he was doing what he was doing for her own good. To rid her of a parasite that would ruin their peace. That's what he says, uh, you know. That she is the, the, that stars the parasite 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 to the uh to the mother and then of course there's so much conversation about um moral stature he's very very cognizant of his own moral stature and that she is trying to that he has a higher moral stature than what his father would have had right his father would have right. been it would have been manipulative just as manipulative as her and he wasn't going to stoop to that level until in the end he does right and when he does right. it ends so up, badly. He ends up-
1: you know, identifying with his with his father as the the one who's going to be the true moral guide in this situation, as opposed to his mother, right? And then the sheriff is identified with the father as well, and so then the fact that in the end of the story the sheriff comes in and gets it completely wrong, yeah, tells you that the yeah. dad was not an appropriate moral guide.
0: Yeah, yeah. What's interesting is that it says on page three ninety seven that his fury was directed not at the little slut but at his mother.
2: And what on three ninety seven? What happens to what happens um, to drive him to fury? Standing in the scene.
0: So he—it's right after her suicide attempt, right?
1: Her suicide. Oh right. Because he told her to do it. Yeah. That whole that scene was intense, you know, where she says, "No one likes me. I wonder if I died, if God would even." want me. And then she says I'll go to hell and Satan won't even want me. I mean, that's the kind of uh, this is very well done by O'Connor and really shows a lot of psychological insight into these kinds of of girls. I mean, we know now because people have been studying this stuff for 30 years about what, you know, damaged, traumatized girls do, but this is so so classic, right? That on the surface it seems like this just stupid manipulative attempt for attention and oh she wasn't really trying to kill herself anyway but there's always something real going on Mm -hmm. underneath that right and so even though on one sense yeah she's doing the he doesn't like me bat my eyes wink wink nudge nudge but on on the other level i mean this really is probably how she feels even hell you know if i went to hell even satan wouldn't want me no one wants me
2: right Um, right
1: responds to that by trying to get him to want her in the only way that she knows how to be wanted And he rejects her, too, which, you know, he should have, but she doesn't have anything to balance it with, except for the mom. The mom wants her.
0: What do you think of the line there at the end of that paragraph on 397 where it says that the experience of Sarah Ham, which could have been the name of the story, the experience of Sarah (laughs) Ham had plunged the old lady into mourning for the world. That's a really uh, rich sentence. Yeah. Because he, especially when you think about the narrator and the, the idea of the perspective, because he's aware enough to recognize that she's mourning for the world, but he thinks that's a negative thing. We could talk about the idea of perspective and narrator a lot, because at the end of the story, the narr- the narrator switches to the policeman.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. Did y'all think the mother took the gun?
2: At when? the very end?
1: Well, no, when it's missing, and he thinks Star took it, the mother took oh, it, right? Oh, oh, oh! Because she took all the knives and everything that the girl could kill herself with out of the house.
2: I and thought. He says, I thought the mother took it.
1: Yeah. And then yeah. he says, "Well, I had a gun in my room, and then later the gun comes up missing, but she had taken all the weapons." Yeah, so I think the mother, the mother took it. Okay, okay
2: but why does it reappear? If the mother took it, why does it reappear?
1: Yeah, I guess she put it back.
2: And she put it back loaded, apparently.
1: Well, I thought it was always loaded.
2: Meaning she didn't remove it in order to pull it out.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Why would any of them have put it back, I guess is the question. I know.
2: I know.
0: Hey, Angelina. I want to change this. I want to go back to what Tim was saying because there is one line that is kind of interesting.
1: Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. I'm about to get slammed. let No, no, no.
0: I don't know. I don't know if I would take it as far as what he's saying, but on 402, when he's putting the gun in her bag – it says the snores stopped and Thomas heard the sofa springs groan he grabbed the red pocketbook it had a skin-like feel to his touch and as it opened he caught an unmistakable odor of the girl wincing All right
1: it didn't it did occur to me what the gun symbolizes thank you guys i was no, there no
0: okay. i wasn't talking I, w- I wasn't <laughs> talking about that
1: but that seems so freudian
0: no no i wasn't talking about that i'm talking about more like his cuz the next word there he winces so he gets the smell of the girl and then he winces
1: right let's see uh yeah that's why i think
0: that O'Connor's is playing with people here because she's creating this scenario and she's saying don't read this the way you want to read it like it's if she's gonna come out and say i don't want this to be a freudian reading then you have to read it somewhere else and she's challenging us to look beyond the obvious
2: is it so obvious though the fact that Angelina and I are like not in agreement? The, th- the fact that the three of us are not in agreement doesn't seem like it's
0: well. But what is obvious is the sense of the sensualness of her, of this character. Yeah,
1: right? I mean the fact that she's coming on to him is obvious, and and the repeatedly that when he looks at her, he imagines her hands on his neck, which that's a threat to his life.
0: Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It's not of all the ways that she could touch him it's the idea of her grabbing him around the neck yeah which is like you think about a a pet or a child or something like you can immobilize someone entirely by 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 grabbing them around the throat right or the neck Mm -hmm. If, if you have the proper amount of strength and they're in the proper position and all that you hit the right place all you know all that kind of stuff it's you're in a very powerful position if you have the right strength and you have your hand around someone's neck right which there so that that does go back to the idea of the threat. But okay, so let's talk. We don't have a lot of time left. We are going we are all over the place in this episode. So <laughs> to all of our listeners, um I apologize. Um I didn't expect to talk about any of this. What um let's talk dark grace. This is the O'Connor trademark, right? And I said before yeah. the show that there wasn't the dark grace there. Um is there a moment of dark grace in this in this particular story or is this an out, outlier as far as that goes? Is this just kind of a and that's why this story feels even more theatrical than others to me because it almost feels like this little standalone noir exercise in story writing that she wrote that's very different than her other stuff and, in my opinion, not as good. But um, does the Dark Grace pop up here? Do we get the trademark O'Connor here? I, don't,
1: I, did, I, I didn't see
0: it. I didn't see it either. And it's strange that the camera
2: cuts – I found it so peculiar that the camera cut to the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Why did the I, camera not stay on Thomas? That see, I just I, But
1: I took that as the grace is not going to come. No one's going to have real insight into what happened here. Everything's going to be misinterpreted, which might be O'Connor playing with us with the whole are we going to give this a Freudian interpretation or are we going to miss the point too? Not that I think that anyone here gave a Freudian interpretation, by the way, but… Right. You know, Tim's not suggesting that his real issues is he's jealous and wants to be married to his mother. You know.
2: Right. Right. Or that he's he like wanted no, to kill his father. I, right. I think right.
0: we're Tim speaking to the idea of temptation, right?
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. And
0: we're we're all we're all allowing for the fact that there is some kind of inner turmoil going on, some varying degrees of temptation, and Tim's just saying that this one is. Yes, a higher degree than others it's a matter of degree nature of
1: the temptation absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah yeah yeah.
0: and even you know we all agree that there is that, that she is presented star is presenting herself in a sensual nature and she's meant to ride she's meant to 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 to, to be a pain in his neck <laughs> oh, <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> um but but so okay given that it doesn't seem like there's a dark grace there um that there's not a moment of redemption um how should our listeners respond to this story is this the story of all the stories to just put out of your head and say, "Let's move on"? Or is there something deeper that we can take away from it here? Some something that well, we is can... it
1: a tragedy? Is it a cautionary tale? I mean, is it Hamlet? The Hamlet stuff was hard to ignore,
0: right? And that's why I, don't I know, kind Tim, of you're the
1: Hamlet guy. But that, you know, I
0: asked the question because I I, I gave my little experiential response to the story which yeah you can we, it's kind of it's relative obviously i'm not saying it's what o'connor's trying to do but but it feels like the kind of story that our experiences with it are going to be so wildly varying um and that's w- true and, and and that that that's evidenced by the varying degrees of interpretation um or different readings that we each have you
1: know and, and I- be totally willing to be open to the idea that I missed some of the sexual stuff, like the, like whether or not he's really tempted by it, that maybe I didn't focus on that because I was so busy focusing on seeing myself, seeing um, how much I live in the world of ideas with my Christianity and virtue, and how much I don't want to be made uncomfortable, and, you know, yeah, the church really ought to do something about that homelessness problem.
0: <laughs> so maybe... <laughs> you know? Maybe it's the kind of story where, where while there's not a dark sense of dark grace for the characters, all of us can see in some way in Thomas's struggle, and in what happens to his mother, and in her attempts at generosity, and even in 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 Star slash Sarah's own journey, we can see ourselves somewhere in there um, if we spend enough time with it, and right. and that that's where maybe the, the the sense of grace can come in our own conviction um which which in a story where it doesn't feel like it's obviously consistent with a lot of her other work you know gr- christian art is is probably the most comp- good christian art is the most complicated art of all right
1: oh absolutely so i think we're seeing though that even though she has a particular what do i want to say I don't even want to say pattern. O'Connor. She, she has, yeah, that she has a style, right? Things she's trying to accomplish, moments of grace, reversal, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think we're also seeing though that she's within that very flexible. I think we've gotten a lot of different types of stories. Yeah. I I, I was pretty sure reading this that it was going to be the mom who got it, yeah. but I wasn't totally sure till I got to the end. It wasn't totally obvious to me like some well, of these right. stories Well,
0: O'Connor's been. and Mothers are never, you know, if you're a mother in an <laughs> O'Connor story, your chances of not surviving are pretty high.
1: <laughs> this is I, true.
2: I want
0: to,
2: I'm kind of quiet over here because I'm thinking about how this is in many ways, it's a very, the pattern, it's a pattern that O'Connor likes to to follow, except for the very end. So if we look at the previous how many stories have we read thus far? Five? Um, in all of the previous stories that we've read, when the camera, when the story ends, the camera is on the narrator.
0: I like He's how you're saying Mrs. camera. May. You've totally bought into my, uh,
1: <laughs> You've convinced my theatrical
0: you, thing here.
2: <laughs> well, I do. I, I certainly agree with you that this story really lends itself toward... um. Yeah, it has it has lighting. It you know, there just there are ways in which she seems to be using almost a camera's eye. It seems more in this oh, story than the no, other. Ones. I
1: agree, I agree. Some of the images so, in here are almost like stock Hollywood images. Girl coming down the stairs in a robe, you know.
2: Right. So in all of the previous stories, the camera after this moment of violence, stays on the narrator. Because this is the moment that the narrator is either going to...
1: Yes.
2: ...take on the grace mm. or not take on the grace. So let me just read the that's last...
0: A, yeah, that's a great point.
2: Terrible.
1: Well, really, in a lot of these stories, the omniscient narrator comes over and tells us what it is we just saw.
2: Right, because we see nature turn to red in a couple of the previous stories. But we don't go to nature. We don't go to the narrator. And I think... I Maybe that's ones? what
1: was missing in this story was the nature stuff. Maybe that's also why it felt different.
2: Maybe so. Last paragraph. The sheriff's brain. So actually, let me do the last two paragraphs. The echo died away in waves. That's the echo from the gun. The echo died away in waves. Before the last one had faded, Fairbrother, the sheriff, opened the door and put his head inside the hall. His nose wrinkled. His expression for some few seconds was that of a man unwilling to admit surprise. His eyes were as clear as glass, reflecting the scene. The old lady on the floor between the girl and Thomas. Now, this is interesting. Okay. The sheriff's brain worked instantly like a calculating machine. He saw the facts as if they were already in print. The fellow, Thomas, had intended all along to kill his mother and pin it on the girl but Fairbrother had been too quick for him. They were yet, they were not yet aware of his head in the door. Can I pause there for a second? Are we meant to see that his head in the door is similar to Thomas's head in the window? I don't know. I'll go on. Um, Thomas's head That's in the window is the very opening yeah. paragraph.
1: Well, she does that in a lot of the stories she opens and ends in the same way. And, uh, And and yeah, so we have another guy who doesn't know what he sees, right? Whose name is
0: Fairbrother.
2: Whose name is Fairbrother. And listen to this, this, he kind of takes on Thomas's perspective in another way. They were not yet aware of his head in the door. As he scrutinized the scene, further insights were flashed to him. Over her body, the killer and the slut were about to collapse into each other's arms. The sheriff knew a nasty bit when he saw it. He was accustomed to enter upon scenes that were not as bad as he had hoped to find them, but this one met his expectations. It seems like in some ways he's taking on Thomas's viewpoint. Is he in some way? Am I wrong there? Am I stretching that too much?
1: Because he says slut?
2: And because he's, like, he's, he's positioned like Thomas was in the opening paragraph of the story. He's kind of framed in his case by a door, in Thomas's case by a window. I I, I fully admit I might be stretching it a little bit. Well but I'm just I'm searching for an explanation as to why Con O'Connor cuts to the sheriff.
1: Say but I think no, I agree with you that it's a it's it's parallel bookends. It's a little frame here and both of the frames tell us that the person seeing things get are getting it wrong.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm hmm. But the killer and the slut, I'm telling you that is so film noir, right? I mean just Yeah,
0: yeah it's totally. And the idea of like the um
1: the plot that goes wrong. Yep, yeah.
0: Yeah and then the the idea of the crime scene meeting his expectations, like you could see her she's probably read like a pulp novel or something like that about the detective who like liked his job a little too much.
2: I agree with you guys that I mean it does kind of resonate with film noir. It's, but I, do you guys have a notion of why this is the only time, and I don't think that she'll do it in any of the remaining stories that instead of focusing on the potential moment of grace in the person who's been telling the story, Thomas, she moves to somebody she moves to someone to a very minor character.
1: I mean Well, okay. Let's 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 just think through this out loud then. If, if O'Connor is attempting to write a story that she's going to say, this is not Freudian, that actually does kind of fit in with the idea of using kind of a film noir form, right? Because that's a universe that doesn't think that there's a spiritual reality behind things. It's a random, chaotic, meaningless universe. You get entangled in things and you can't get out. There's psychological explanations for things, not spiritual explanations for things. This makes me wonder if she's just playing with all of this. mean surely she'd have seen movies she'd have known about (laughs) what else is there to do in midgeville georgia
0: (laughs) (laughs) i didn't even have a theater tend to the peafowls
1: i don't know that but it it has to be deliberate it just has such a different style and tone to this story
2: and she's too much of a a craftsman to not to, to um
1: and the fact at the end is, you, get, you got it wrong. I feel like she's just saying about all of that, the Freudians, the naturalists, the, the nihilists, y'all all got it wrong.
0: So basically she's saying that no matter what happens, you're going to read this scene how you read it, and you're probably going to get it wrong.
1: <laughs> the fact that we can't even agree is like evidence that she did it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this story Success. is just a big trick. And so we as readers can't get comfortable within the home that is her story.
2: Oh, gosh, man, we have, like, (laughs) that is, like, I don't think that's meta. That's something above meta. What is that?
1: We have reached new levels. (laughs) Meta, meta? Meta, meta, meta.
2: Uber meta?
0: Uber meta. (laughs)
1: That's trademarked. Be careful. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, listen, we've been talking for a long time. Uh, And uh, I don't know if we got anywhere. You know, I got to say, where did, where does this fall in y'all's ranking of the stories that we've read so far? Or the, or just of O'Connor that you know so far?
1: I really yeah, liked it. And I think it's because I just, I, I like the film noir <laughs> structure and genre. I don't know. I just, maybe it's because I never read it before. And, I'm, you know, I'm having the experience of having read it the first time, which I, I don't have with the other stories, That I'm fond of it. But I, I liked it.
2: Uh, we've done everything that rises must converge. Green leaf a view of the woods the enduring chill and now the comforts of home this is number five
0: you Golly. know it's interesting because in the end if you want the simplest reading of this story right is that the wages of sin is death and mm-hmm. you know we you could, you could read it that way and it becomes a cautionary tale and it's a pretty simple story um and so i wonder how our readers will ex- respond to it like i wonder if there's not the grotesqueness as in other stories except that thomas is kind of a jerk you know and nobody wants to there's not a lot of people who you can really sympathize for except that at least in this story we can all support the mother and it's and believe you know oh it's a tragedy she died you know yes. so you've got the sense of there is an actual tragedy that happened in this story and somehow that tragedy makes the universe seem normal <laughs>
1: Right, and the tragedy being her son is at least ostensibly so concerned for her and her safety, and is she being taken care uh, advantage of, and then he's the one that kills her.
2: Yeah, yeah. And the mother wasn't. She was a good character, even if we. Yes. Angelina she dies raised questions about whether or not she dies right? as a
0: martyr. She jumps um, in front
1: of the girl, which we didn't talk about.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot we didn't talk about. <laughs> We got a little distracted.
1: Welcome to sort of close reads. <laughs> Cl-
0: close-ish reads. Close-ish. <laughs> well, I'm sure the conversation will continue over on the Facebook page. Um, I'm sure our readers will chime in and tell which of us you know, they agree. I know, us I'm which already of us wondering agree.
1: how every, they're going to all come up against me like, Angelina's nuts. stories about a man fleeing temptation. I might be nuts. I'm open to that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a story about a bunch of people fleeing a bunch of things, no matter what, how you read it, so... Um, Any final thoughts here Or have you said your piece
1: I think I've said my piece
0: I think this was my
2: I think this is my least favorite Of the five But it's kind of like saying Which is your least uh, Of your favorite five uh, Shakespeare plays Which is your least favorite (laughs) You know the bar is set so high That if it's my least favorite Of the five we read It's still a great story
1: Yeah
0: yep it's it's a it's really it's a well-told lots of narrative momentum and crafts and all that kind of stuff that goes into it which we really didn't even get to get into but um anyway uh remember coasters if you want a nice stone close reads coasters with our new slogan book club podcast for the incurable reader then um make sure you get on facebook not on the Facebook group. On your personal Facebook page, post why the Close Reads podcast has been helpful or meaningful to you, and use the code Close Reads giveaway, and we will choose at random two of the obviously millions of people who are going to post that uh, to to win on next week's show on the seventh. So do that sometime in the next five days, I guess, from when this is posted, and you know get your chance to win. And remember, please do subscribe if uh, you haven't subscribed to just the Close Reads show. Please do so. Uh, you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, you know, wherever podcasts are found. Uh, like they say, when it, wherever books are sold, right? Um, and, uh, of course, sign up for the Circe uh, Podcast Network feed if you haven't signed up for that as well. We'd love it if you sign up for both of those things. That would help us greatly as we look to produce more content. Uh, and with that, I guess that's it for this week. You, you guys, sure you've said your piece. You got everything out. Angelina, Tim, anything else to add?
1: I don't think that Tim and I are so far off. I'd say that.
0: I probably not. Probably not. Okay. All right. We're good. We're friends, right? We're. We're everything's okay. For now. Hundred percent. Till next. Till next week. (laughs)
1: I'm gonna go to Twitter flame war against Tim (laughs) after this is over. Other than that, we're fine. Okay. All right. All right. right. No, that's
0: that's just normal. That's fine. Okay. All right. Well, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim Macintosh, who ostensibly are still friends. (laughs) <laughs> I'm David Curran saying farewell here on the SOCI Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads. We look forward to talking to you next time.